Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're turning off the lights and exploring the 2020 horror film, The Night House. Before we get into all that spooky stuff, however, what is going on? Well, on the subject of spooky, something this way comes. It's that time of the year again. The tome is approaching. For new listeners, Matt, what is the tome? The Blasphemous Tome. This will be issue nine. So we're almost in double figures now. The fanzine that we put out for our Patreon backers twice a year, full of all good things, including a scenario from your good self as well. Yep, I've got a new scenario in the tome. It's called Step Into My Parlour. And it's set in 1880s America in the uh, Down Dark Trails setting. And speaking of publications, you also apparently have got your hands on Cults of Cthulhu. Is that right, Paul? I have. I'm opening up my new cult next week. (laughs) I received a a contributor's copy, so maybe a little earlier than others, of Cults of Cthulhu. And I have to say, yeah, it looks really good. Maybe, as I said before in uh, episode 232, when we talked with author Chris Lackey about it, I think Chaosium have raised the bar on this one. There's a lot of art in it. A lot of really good artwork in it, some by friends of the show, including John Sumro. Yeah, it looks like a really good book. So I think that should probably be on general sale when this episode goes out. But I know that Chaosium are waiting on like deliveries to arrive on ships. And uh, with everything going on, there's no guarantees for that kind of thing right now. These boats aren't travelling across the South Pacific, are they? Do you know what? I really don't know. They're going across the Serenarian Sea, linking into our uh, previous episode. But either way, this should be on sale soon, so you'll be able to get your hands on a copy. And now on to our main topic, The Night House. So The Night House is a 2020 American horror film directed by David Bruckner. It was originally supposed to come out in 2020, and I believe was shown at the Sundance Festival that year. But then COVID happened, and it got shelved for a while, eventually coming out, I think, in mid to late 2021. So I wonder if it got a cinema release? It did, yeah. Not that many people were going to the cinema at that point. No. But the first place I saw it was Disney+, Plus, which I thought was a very strange place to find it. That is weird. Well, they do some stuff for adults on there, and yeah, this seems like a very odd choice for them. Not exactly on brand, but yeah, it is (laughs) one of the only places you can stream it in the UK. Because Disney have acquired Fox, and that allowed them to put quite a lot of material up on Disney+, Plus. so it's certainly not, by all means, just like animated cartoons. They've got lots of series up there, and there is quite Mm. a bit of adult content too. Bruckner is known for directing The Signal and segments of the anthology films VHS and Southbound. More recently, he directed the adaptation of Adam Neville's The Ritual, which we discussed in episode 130 all the way back in 2018. And boy, I think this film is different to that one. (laughs) No off licenses. This is a remarkable improvement. 
But I did enjoy his earlier stuff. The Signal, I think, is a terrific film. A very strange film, but yeah, one I enjoyed greatly. And Southbound, I loved. Mm. I was going to say, there's some good bits in VHS. Is Southbound an anthology film? It's a very weird anthology film in that there's sort of a bouncing narrative that runs through it connecting the segments. I guess a bit like VHS in that respect. It's more than just a framing sequence, though. It's like the narrative passes over and you get a character wandering from one segment to another, connecting them that way. It reminds me a little of some of Louis Buñuel's stuff, like The Phantom of Liberty, where that happens all the way through. Because VHS is clearly an anthology. You've got that sort of framing device for it of the various videos. But Southbound, I watched that quite a few years ago now, and I don't remember it being an anthology <laughs> film, so it probably make more sense if I realise that. It definitely is in that each segment has different writers and directors, but it right. has that cohesion that makes it feel like more of a single story. Sure. The screenplay is by Luke Petrosky, and hopefully I haven't butchered the name, and Ben Collins, much easier to pronounce, who had previously written Super Dark Times and the VHS spin-off. I didn't realise there was a spin-off to that. Mm. Siren. They're also the writers of the upcoming Hellraiser remake, also directed by Bruckner. Ah. And yeah, Ben Collins is also apparently the screenwriter on the forthcoming adaptation of Paul Tremblay's A Head Full of Ghosts, which I'm very excited by because that's an amazing book and I can see it making a really good film. Mm. The Nighthouse was originally conceived as a Hellraiser reboot. The character of Beth was apparently originally conceived as a more sympathetic take on Julia from the original Hellraiser, which I guess you can sort of see if you squint, but I think what we see here in the Nighthouse is so reworked and rewritten, there's probably not a lot of that Hellraiser influence left in there. And certainly the supernatural elements and the overall story now are something I'd say really quite different. Mm -hmm. hmm. In a good way, I'd say as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And considering how terrible most of the Hellraiser sequels and attempts to tackle that material in recent years have been, I think deviating from that is no bad thing. <laughs> I'm cautiously optimistic about this new reboot, but as far as franchises go, it's not been a good one so far. You've got one and a half good films starting it, and then an awful lot of dreck. There's a direct correlation or inverse correlation between the number on the Hellraiser title sequence. As the number goes up, the general rating of it goes down. I was being a bit unkind there, probably, to Hellraiser 2. I remember enjoying it quite a lot, actually, but it's a long time since so I've seen it. I remember it not grabbing me as much as the original, but... It's a rare sequel that lives up to the original. I love the second one more than the first one. I think I've said before, the visuals and the style of that film, I think, vastly are better than the first one. And, of course, we did discuss Hellraiser, oh gosh, back in an earlier episode, which I'll link to from the show notes. Now let's take an overview of The Night House. We open with Beth, previously mentioned the former Julia standing, spending an evening drinking, rereading the suicide note left by her now deceased husband Owen, and watching old home movies before trying to sleep in a very lonely, empty bed. So it's a really fun, uplifting beginning to this thing, all just from the start. Well, it's worth 
pointing out we don't know it's a suicide note we don't know what's happened to her husband but yeah. she does seem sad at the time i'm thinking either he's left her or he's dead they're dressed in black when she and a friend of hers come into the house there's the obligatory here's a roasted dinner for you covered with tinfoil that promptly goes in the bin and also she is listening to music for part of this and we have this song which keeps coming up all the way through the film, which is The Calvary Cross by Richard and Linda Thompson, which is a great song. I'm a big fan of Richard Thompson. But I wondered whether there was some particular significance to this choice of song, because it seems to be inextricably linked with Owen. And every time, as we'll see later, there is some manifestation of what at least we initially understand to be Owen. We hear this song, the hi-fi starts up and plays this. I guess there is this hint of self-sacrifice from the title of the Calvary Cross, but the song itself doesn't really seem to play into that too much. And I just wondered whether the filmmakers chose it because they liked it. Yeah, I think it's got a mournful sound to it. Yeah. And I found a quote attributed to Richard Thompson, although I didn't verify it was actually by him, but anyway, who says Calvary Cross is about a muse or about anything. It's about a drive that you might not want, but it's there and you're a slave to it. Ah, so that kind of fits. Yeah. And also when I looked up the track on YouTube to listen to, I was just having a quick look at the comments, which, you know, is never a good thing. But I thought the first comment was quite touching. Somebody says, this was our wedding song. Sometimes I listen to it on my stereo system while I'm building our new lake house and my wife films me. I can't <laughs> wait until I'm done with the house so I can spend more time in my new boat. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. But... Oh, man. <laughs> and there was me just thinking it was they use a song because they didn't have the money to get the rights to every breath you take, but I like that one. Beth is disturbed by knocking from outside, maybe inside, maybe outside the house. She thinks she sees a reflection of a figure in the glass door. This is something that kind of crops up quite a lot through the film, a kind of typical spooky device. But when she shuts it, there's no one there. In the morning, she finds footprints from the nearby dock leading up to the house. And while she stood there, there's these wooden steps that lead from her house, which is very secluded by a lake, and they lead down a, a bit of a cliff down to a, a little uh, pier where there's a boat. And while she's there, a gunshot rings out really loudly, scaring a bunch of birds out the trees. Now, going back to this figure that she sees in the glass door, this is, a, as you say, a motif that we see throughout the film. And I was very impressed with the way they did this. It's perhaps not quite as apparent in that first manifestation. But what we see all the way through when this figure reappears is that it is always constructed entirely of negative space, mm. that it's defined by what's around it. There is no figure there, which is thematically very important, but it's the absence of its surroundings. It's this emptiness. I don't think I've ever seen something presented on film in quite that way before. I mean, obviously, a lot of filmmakers make great use of negative space, but I don't think I've seen it as a living manifestation in that way, as something quite so sinister. And I thought as a way of presenting an otherworldly entity, that was probably the single strongest element of this film. Yeah, I agree. It's a great visual technique that they make a lot of use of throughout this. It's also 
something that's not quite in the background, but it's close enough that you might miss it if you weren't specifically looking for it. Because mm. if you're focusing on Rebecca Hall, the, the actress who plays Beth, then you might not realise this at all on an initial viewing. But yeah, it's, it's a great little initial tone-setting moment that uh, really, really works for me. There's a bit later on where, as you said, Scott, the space creates the shape of a figure. So there's the kind of silhouette of a plaster coving on one wall. And mm. behind that, a few feet behind that, there's the silhouette of a bookcase. And the two together, what we're talking about here is the two together, the shape between those looks just like the profile of a person, of a human being. And with the lighting, it just works perfectly. And then they move the camera and you you see that what you were looking at was an optical illusion just mm. created by those shapes. Yeah, like you say, Scott, I've not seen that done in a horror film before. I've seen it done as a, a trick, kind of a op typical optical illusion, but it really used a really spooky effect here. It's basic pareidolia, which I probably completely mispronounced, but the human impulse to see human shapes in your surroundings. But what is particularly effective here is those rare moments where you're slowly aware of this shape, this negative shape, and then it moves. That is just incredibly creepy. Mm. I mean, that doesn't come till later, right? So we learn that Beth is a teacher at the local high school. She goes into work, despite obviously dealing with all this grief. Everyone around her is treating her very gently, walking on eggshells. But then she's sitting there at, a, I assume, a parent-teacher conference or something like that. And a student's mother comes in to have a word with her about her son's grades or a particular grade. Beth sits there and sort of nods and takes it for a bit and eventually snaps and sort of says that she doesn't give a fuck about the son's grade because she's trying to deal with the fact that her husband took the boat out into the lake near her house and shot himself in the head last week. And this seems to shut the woman up. I thought this was a great way to deliver exposition because up yeah. till this point, we don't know what's happened to her husband. I think we got a pretty good indication that he's maybe dead. I'm not even sure we've got that necessarily. But here we get that sort of smacked in the face in the same way the parent does at that point. I agree. I think it's a good piece of storytelling in that it not only delivers the information, but it does so in an emotionally impactful way. It is, if you step back from it, a fairly obvious bit of narration and here's the bit of information that the audience needs to know, but it's delivered in such an impactful way that you don't resent it as being obvious exposition. There's also a very nice almost blink-and-you-miss-it trick they pull with the laptop screen. Mm. Initially, she sat at her desk looking at house prices. She's like on the US equivalent of Zoopla looking for other properties, I think, setting the idea up that she wants to move out and wants to get away from here. But then she kind of nods off. The clock moves forward a little bit when she looks back up. And then her computer screen is full of pictures of guns. Yeah. Particularly she's looking to buy, which was a nice little touch. Mm. Returning home, though, Beth meets neighbour, Mel, and mentions that she's thinking of selling the house, kind of building on that moment that we've just described. And she asks if Mel was out shooting that morning, but he claims he wasn't. The footprints on the dock are also gone. That night, Beth watches more home movies, this time of Owen building their house. Afterwards, she starts bagging up and throwing away his stuff. That was quick. 
Yeah, I think it's more just an not a rational thing. It's just an emotional reaction, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think she's actually throwing it away at this stage. Mm. She's putting it in boxes and getting ready to do so. But it's like this stage-by-stage stage process where I think she's trying to create some emotional distance and stop herself having to deal with these things on a daily mm-hmm. basis, but not giving up on them completely. Yeah, there's lots of boxes, but also a load of black bin liners as well. So it's almost like she's going, this stuff I'm going to keep and put away somewhere out in a box out of sight. The rest of it's going in the bin. We learned that Owen was an architect, and he obviously has a number of books on architecture. In amongst these books, as Beth's backing them up, she finds a sketchbook that is filled with, first of all, designs their house, but then these strange maze designs that seem to be almost Escher-esque, and then a cryptic note in there that says, trick it, don't listen to it. There are floor plans that are mirror images of the house in which she's living. There's also a, I guess, an evidence bag from the police that has got the gun that Owen used to kill himself. At this point, we're 21 minutes into the film because I stopped it to check. Because this was the point at which I began to think, is this the right film? (laughs) Is there another film called Nighthouse? Is this the one Matt recommended? Because I was beginning to wonder if it was going to turn out to be a horror film or something else. But then when I saw this scene, I'm like, oh, okay, I don't need to ring Matt and confirm that I've I've got the right film here. This is definitely the right one. I don't think there was any doubt even before this stage that it was a horror film. Those opening scenes with Beth alone in the house, dealing with the grief and that reflection in the window... The general atmosphere of those was incredibly tense and creepy. For a scene in which nothing really happens or very little happens, there was so much dread in that opening that I found it not quite unbearable, but certainly uncomfortable. I was really surprised at how effective that was. This is why this particular film I was attracted to. The key word is atmosphere and tension here. Mm. There's nothing so God, slasher-esque or, as we mentioned previously, it's not very heavy on blood, but it absolutely drips atmosphere and, and say, really unease. Mm. I think it does perhaps go a bit into slasher territory later, but we'll get to that. Oh, yeah, in a minor, minor way. But anyway, later, Beth is woken up by music downstairs again. It's that song. It's back. She receives a text apparently from Owen's phone and it asks her to come downstairs. The music stops. She calls the number and hears a voice telling her to look out the window. Who is this? Owen? I can't hear you. Owen, naked and doing his best Jesus impression, is standing on the surface of the lake. He turns towards her, and she wakes up. 
Yeah, and you know what? Why do ghosts write in block capitals? <laughs> Why do they text in block caps? I mean, are they shouting? They're shouting while also whispering as well. Yeah, they whisper, but they shout in text. I mean, why is that? I don't know. It always seems to be the case. This scene was where I started to get a few doubts about the film. And we'll get to this, I think, a bit more in some of the subsequent scenes. In that, at times, it felt like... I mean, Shaw is a bit of a ghost story, even though it's not technically a ghost story, as we'll discover. but. They're trying to obviously layer on the creepy elements and bring in lots of imagery and so on. Sometimes it just felt like they were overdoing it to the extent where it was losing focus a bit. And this dream is a nice scene and it's creepy and so on. But I was left feeling that it actually diluted the overall narrative a bit. There's no record of the text the next morning on Beth's phone. And when she checks, she goes out to the car and, and finds Owen's phone and she checks that and there's no text been made by his phone. So, you know, I guess she figures it was a dream. But while she's got Owen's phone in her hand, she just casually has a look through his photographs that he's taken recently. There's one or two of her and, and the house and, and so on. And then she looks and there's a photograph of a woman that from the sort of side rear view with her face obscured by her long dark hair. And it looks like Beth, but Beth doesn't think it is her. It's got a blouse on that she doesn't recognise. So she's perplexed by this. This leads her to talk to her friend about it. So that night, Beth goes out drinking with a bunch of her fellow teachers, including her friend Claire, and they talk a little bit about, well, first of all, about why Beth thinks the house is haunted. Actually, that's not where they start. No, they talk about Owen after that, don't they? This conversation veers in so many different directions Yeah, that it starts off with her saying quite out of the blue, it's like, I think my house is haunted, or I think there's something there. Yes. And yeah. then it starts to weave into other threads. And so, yeah, the other teachers try to think of rational explanations for what's going on, and they do end up talking about Owen. And one of the co-workers asks if Owen left a suicide note, which yeah, is a bit blunt. And Beth is showing the same kind of willingness to rub people's noses in it, as we saw with the student's parent earlier, actually pulls the suicide note out of her purse, which has even got some of Owen's blood on it and shows it to her colleagues. And the note reads, You were right. There is nothing. Nothing is after you. You're safe now. I think it's worth pointing out there are some great bits of humour in this film as well. There was a number of times when I burst out laughing, not because of the horror, you know, in a reaction to that, just because there are funny lines. At the table here, where they're in this bar, there's one of the teachers, a guy, suggests that maybe she's had sleep paralysis. Oh, yes. But then he has to sort of attempt at mansplaining, like some people do, to put forward a word and then wait for other people to ask him what it means. And they don't. So he's like, do you know what sleep paralysis means? And they're like, yes, Gary, I know what sleep paralysis <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, that was great. There's another one that comes up again in the same scene, which was where, again, they try to say something to try and put her at ease, and she just gives them this deadpan look, or as if looks could kill. You want to reassure me with the suicide soliloquy from Hamlet? Really? Oh, yeah. 
Beth later reveals to Claire that the note actually referred to a car crash that she had when she was 17. She died but was revived in the incident. But while she was dead, she remembers there being only nothing. This whole setup and where the film goes from this stage reminded me so much of Carnival of Souls, which does involve a car crash, a teenage girl in a car crash, and she is revived from it and then has weird manifestations that, I mean, they're presented very differently than this. But the end result, or at least the upshot of what's going on, definitely has parallels with this. I don't think you could argue that this is a remake or a reboot of Carnival of Souls, but there are certainly very strong thematic similarities. Mm. And then suddenly, well, is it a jump scare? I don't know. Yeah, it absolutely is. And this is one of the reasons why I was kind of surprised Matt recommended this, because <laughs> there are a number of jump scares in this film. It's fairly shameless about them. They don't operate as jump scares as I feel in other films. They didn't have the same impact on me as I recognise jump scares in other films, I have to say. They're quite mild in terms of the kind of the jump scareometer. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I have the volume up pretty loud. Oh, boy. <laughs> The one thing I'll say in defence of the jump scares in this is that unlike a lot of other films, they're not gratuitous. You don't get that thing where you'll randomly get a supporting character wander up at a tense moment and put their hand on the shoulder of the protagonist scaring the shit out of her or something like that, which you get in a lot of films. So where there is a jump scare in this, it is something genuinely nasty or scary that's happening. So what happens here is the electrics in the house go haywire and Beth finds herself all alone in the house. And the disembodied voice tells Beth to go to the door. Outside, she sees girls running across the garden and jumping off a cliff above the dock. So they're jumping over that fence down into the lake. On the other side of the lake, she can see distant lights that are there one moment, like there's a house over there, and then they're gone the next. But is there a house across the lake? I mean, at this point, I'm like, well, maybe there is a house over there, but we haven't seen it up to now. But these girls running and jumping off the cliff, it's obviously a hallucination or a vision or something because two of them run down, jump off, which, you know, they could be real, but then she goes to have a look and another one just appears behind her and, and runs over. So we as the viewer know this isn't really happening. But what was the deal with that? It kind of struck me a lot, the similar kind of feel to the film It Follows, that all the girls are dressed in kind of different outfits. Some of them are very scantily clad, others are more fully clothed, that it just had that feeling of that entity that follows the main character through that film, that these were all people, that something bad had happened to them, and that this was evidently foreshadowing something to come. Hmm. I'm probably being unfair here, but it felt, again, like... Someone had decided, oh, we need to put something creepy in here. Oh, let, let's put this in. That'll look cool on the screen without necessarily giving much thought to how it fitted into the themes and the narrative that have been established so far. I think it does fit in. I mean, as you say, it's a cool visual, mm. but it does fit into the story. Not like literally be part of the story but it, it foreshadows what is going to happen and you can kind of see it's like almost a manifestation of her understanding of what's going on she doesn't know about these girls yet but she's going to 
I just think that it could have been something that meshed with the rest of the film better and sort of had the same emotional impact. At this stage, I found myself actually becoming quite distanced from the film because it just felt like there was too much random stuff happening. Anyway, heading over to the dock, Beth seems to touch an invisible entity and collapses into the boat. The boat floats across the lake and delivers her next to this other house. She hears a disembodied voice telling her that she's dreaming, and she sees herself inside the house with Owen. Entering the house, she sees herself sleeping on the sofa as she wakes up and then closes the open door. That was quite a very disconcerting moment, because you see her come in from the outside. The camera pans over to her where she's also on the sofa. She gets up and then goes over and closes that door that she's just opened. But obviously, she's not there. She's on the sofa. It's a really weird, probably mm. dreamlike sequence. Yeah, I really like that scene. Beth searches Owen's laptop and finds more pictures of women that look like her. This is not looking good for poor Owen. He was a man that had secrets. She then goes to the opposite side of the lake in search of this other house that she saw in her dream. Mel is out walking his dog and tries to get her to go home, concerned that she isn't well. She refuses and finds a partially constructed house hidden in the woods. Inside, she finds a curiously impaled figurine. Just the kind of thing you find lying around in a deserted house in the woods, of course. Yeah, so this figurine is modelled very much on something called the Louvre doll, this sort of poppet that was discovered apparently with a 4th century Roman curse tablet, depicting this contorted figure with these kind of spikes through it. Roman curse tablets, we talked a bit about those in our episode on Nodens, were these little bits of lead that had curses written on them that the Romans used to try to bring the justice of the gods down upon their enemies and ask the gods to smite people who had done them wrong, who had betrayed them or owed them money or hurt them in some way. It also looks exactly like the kind of thing that you'd imagine Pinhead would give to his little son in his crib, <laughs> saying, here, little baby, send a bite. Here, here's a little <laughs> toy for you to play with. Beth confronts Mel, who reveals that Owen told him not to tell her about the house. Mel reveals that he once saw Owen out near the house, this house on the other side of the lake, with a woman that looked like Beth. In fact, he thought it was Beth at first. Back home, Beth goes through the belongings of Owen that she hasn't got around to throwing away yet, and she finds a copy of a book entitled Caredroyer. The book opens with the seal of Cameo, aka Came, from the Goetia. There is a chapter on decoys and deceptions, which has been annotated, we assume in Owen's handwriting, with a note saying basic trickery. When you said decoys and deceptions, I just thought D&D, &D, and all <laughs> this could be explained if Owen was just into D&D. &D. <laughs> all his weird maps that he draws in this book, and his interest in like occult things and stuff like that. He's just a role player. Yeah, not enough stat blocks, Paul. That's true. This is also, thankfully, not as horrific as Mazes and Monsters. <laughs> I went looking for this tome because it looked like a professionally produce books. So I was thinking, oh, mm. it exists. It must be out there somewhere. So thinking that this might be some wannabe mythos tome. 
It turns out a Cadroia is a Welsh turf maze, usually in the sevenfold mm. Cretan Labyrinth design, which is imprinted on the front cover of this quite nice hardback book. So more mazes. This is kind of harking back to Owen's sketchbook. But the only Cadroia book I could find online was a big Finnish Doctor Who audio drama. Ah, interesting. There is actually a turf maze very much like that in Milton Keynes. With a lake where you've got the tree in the middle of it, though you walk following the path on the floor. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's near the Peace Pagoda. Yeah, exactly. Just down the hill from the Peace Pagoda. Also inside the book, Beth finds a picture of a similarly impaled figurine called the Louvre Voodoo Doll, alongside underlined passages stating that numerous spells would bind offerings to the artifact for delivery, and simple mazes and reversed spaces intended to confuse or weaken dark forces. This reminds me a fair bit because there's that whole word voodoo that's thrown in there, which I mean, it doesn't have that same connection because it goes back to Roman symbology. Yeah, it's nothing to do with voodoo. But there is something that comes up in a Cthulhu scenario that does have voodoo inspiration in it, the Burning Stars from the Terrace from Beyond collection, where it has a little, not throwaway comment, but it mentions in there about symbols that are marked around door frames and on the floor that are these weird arabesques and swirling patterns that apparently are in voodoo practice designed to confuse spirits. So if they try to enter through a doorway with these marks on them, they get confused by the patterns and basically locked in this kind of visual maze trap. So there is at least a potential voodoo connection here, but the doll is not voodoo in the slightest. This reminded me a little bit of a film that we've also talked about previously, No One Gets Out Alive, where there's that moment when the main character has a look at a book and it's this throwaway moment that if you don't freeze frame the bloody book in the shot, you won't ever notice it and you won't get to read what she's looking at. The next line that's not underlined in that book is also quite important. So you have to really go back and have a look at it, which is by distorting the identity and location of the subject, pursuing spirits could be, and there's something the words kind of cut off the screen, by false forms of sacrifice, which is quite important when it comes up later in the film. And it reminds me a lot of the David Suchet TV adaptation of Agatha Christie's Five Little Pigs, where an important clue is on the screen, but it's not the central focus of the shot. And when it comes back up with Poirot's reveal later of, oh, this is big central clue that I found, you get that same shot and the camera just pans a little bit across to the right and focuses in on something else that's on the shelf at the same time. And I thought this is quite a nice piece of film storytelling and kind of a little film device that you can use but is it something you can pull off in a game because i would love to do that kind of thing yeah absolutely but it depends what the purpose of it is in the game because where you've got investigative games fundamentally they are about trying to get clues into the hands of the players so that they can interpret them and act upon them. And if you're too oblique or too obscure with those clues, then you undermine that. You don't give them the information they need to actually progress. But on the other hand, if there's something that they're then going to discover through other means later, or something that perhaps isn't essential but beneficial, then presenting it obliquely in such a way that they might realize later what the significance was, then, yeah, that can be absolutely effective. You just have to be very careful with 
making sure that it's not something that's going to stymie them. Particularly if it's like on a handout, I'm thinking like the HPLA chess prop set that I've talked about. There are big newspaper articles and they're printed like newspaper. So there'll be bits on the back and other articles surrounding the bit that you think is the handout. So you could easily have other things like mm. in articles which appear to be just kind of set dressing around the main thing. But, you know, maybe one of those are on the back of it. There's actually a, a hidden clue or something that maybe not even a clue, but something that has resonance later. I'd love to do that kind of thing more in games. It's a tool that's ripe for use, but doesn't seem to get much screen time. The risk with being too clever in games like that is that 90% of players will miss stuff like that. And even if they don't, if you try to be too clever like that, and the players think that you're almost having a joke at their expense, then I think that risks rubbing some people up the wrong way. If you can make them feel like they're in on it at the end, then that's different. But I've played with very smug GMs before who have been very taken with their own cleverness. And it's sort of, well, here are all the important clues you missed. And this is what you could have done if you'd realized what was going on. But you were too stupid. And no, if you're too clever about stuff like that, then it takes me back to those days. And... That is not fun. That's not fun at all. Do you want to point at the handout, Scott, and show us where it hurt you? <laughs> Beth gets her investigator hat on now and looks up where the book and the others in Owen's collection were purchased. I mean, this is perfect Call of Cthulhu material here because each of them has got a little uh, like stamp mm. inside the cover and it leads her to this shop. As she's doing all this, she knocks over the impaled figure in frustration and thinks she hears something creaking around upstairs. There, the outline of a pillar looks like the form in silhouette, which turns and looks at her. And this is the point where, if you haven't noticed it before, this is mm. where it really hits you. And we talked about this earlier. Yeah. So Beth decides to visit the bookstore that is mentioned in these stamps. I did note that, what was it? Something like 160 miles mm. away. So, yeah, she's driving for a number of hours to get there and back. Considering that she's basically taking a punt because of a stamp in a couple of books, this is a fairly major undertaking. I guess if she's obsessed enough about the whole thing, then it makes sense. But it did strike me as being a bit tenuous. If I were doing this in a scenario, I would not have put that bookshop 160 miles away. <laughs> She's in the US, Scott. It's not in England. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it were in Bletchley, that would be a long way for us, I know. Yeah. She's like seven or eight miles away, but this is the US. Things are different there. Once she arrives at the bookshop, Beth realises that the background to one of the pictures that she saw on Owen's phone, in fact, the first picture she saw on Owen's phone, was one of the racks here. And sure enough, she actually sees the woman in the photograph working at the shop. She turns out to be an employee by the name of Madeline. Madeline once Beth engages her in conversation, is a bit defensive at first and categorically denies any kind of relationship with Owen, apart from knowing him as a regular customer. And this is where mine and Lucy's face blindness came to the <laughs> fore, because we were like, 
when she was looking at them earlier on the phone pictures were like that's not the same woman is it no it's not no <laughs> beth look look at beth she's got lots of freckles that woman hasn't okay yeah that's different yeah i can see this being a particularly frustrating film if you have face blindness you're having loads of people in there that are basically chosen <laughs> to look like the main character is very confusing but actually it wasn't that big a deal because the film doesn't really rely on that too much there's not too much confusion over that and also they're quite explicit about it and explain it. It's not like you're left to intuit all that. Yeah. It's like the casting directors really had quite an easy time of it. It's like, well, we've got a main actress set. Now we're only looking for people that look like her. So yeah. there's this row of people coming into the audition. It's like, no, you, you don't you don't not look right. Next, next, next. I thought it was a really good scene, you know, that realisation that when she goes to the shop, because I'm not thinking she's going to see that woman. Mm. Then she actually sees the woman and she's like, oh, that was a surprise to me. That was a good little, well, maybe not twist, but a good step forward in the film. I thought it was uh, very good. And the relationship she gets with this woman is very interesting. Yeah, especially the way the scene's framed, because initially she's talking to a male clerk behind the counter there and sort of saying, mm. oh, my husband was a regular customer here. He bought all these books. Can you tell me if there's anything else he had on order or anything like that? And the guy's just <laughs> being so amazingly unhelpful in, in really quite a smug way. It's sort of, well, no, we don't mm. keep those kinds of records. No, no I, I can't help you with that. It felt like one of those scenes in the Call of Cthulhu game where the investigators have gone off on completely the wrong track, have gone off to this bookshop because, yeah, they've seen the stamp in there, didn't realise that it was just something that this scenario writer put in there for colour. And the GM is desperately there just trying to play an NPC who doesn't know anything about what's going on, while stalling for time, thinking, oh, is there any way I can get you some information here anyway? That night, Claire suggests that Beth stays with her for a few nights. So Beth returns home to pack, but is interrupted when Madeline comes to visit. Madeline recounts a dream in which she thought she was Beth and that she was being chased. Owen also invited her, Madeline this is, to the house across the lake, but he was acting a little strange. Beth returns to the house, the one across the lake, and finds numerous bodies hidden under the floorboards. This house is kind of half-built. It's very much a, like a derelict, half-built house. It's kind of creepy. Mm. Instead of calling the police, Beth goes home and showers. I will point out something. When she turns up, you know, we've already talked about Hellraiser, but she turns up and she yells out because she wants to sort of speak to um, Owen or, or she just wants to know what's going on and sort of communicate with this thing that is out there. And she yells out, you called, I came, yes. which... <laughs> Very much reminded me of Pinhead and the Cenobites arriving. The box. You opened it. We came. So while Beth is showering upstairs, she hears the hi-fi startup downstairs again, playing the Calvary Cross once again. And she cries for the first time since Owen killed himself, wishing that Owen was there with her. At this point, she sees that someone has written the word here in the steam on the bathroom mirror. Once again, she appears to touch something invisible in the room, and a disembodied voice says, I'm here, but then follows it up by saying, but I'm not Owen. That was another nice creepy little moment. 
Because up until this point, I think it's pretty much the assumption of the viewer rather than it actually being stated out that this thing is Owen, that it's his voice that she's been hearing as this disembodied thing, that it's very much that is her dead husband. And it's kind of this out of nowhere punch just saying, no, I'm not Owen. Hmm. That's interesting. At this stage, I had no assumption that the figure was Owen, that this was Owen, because we'd seen all that stuff about Owen creating this mirror house and trying to trick something. And with the whole way that it was presenting itself through negative space, I at no point thought it was Owen's ghost. I thought very much this is Beth looking for some echo of her dead husband in all of this. But I don't know. I thought it was very obvious from the outset that it wasn't Owen. Yeah, I was kind of 50-50. I wasn't sure whether it was or whether it wasn't. And that was part of the tension, I think, for me. Yeah. In the mirror, Beth sees Owen kill one of the women from the photos before finding herself in that mirror image herself in the house, with Owen killing more of the women. It's a weird, very disjointed, but again, very dreamlike whole passage that this part of the film goes into because it starts off with her very much in the bathroom but then is thrust against the mirror the mirror breaks and suddenly she's on the other side of it in the reflection Mm. there are nice little touches of things in reverse that you see but yeah it's very initially quite confusing but it works in a lot of ways yeah definitely it's good use of kind of like a mirror world or a upside down world and all that sort of idea of it being a kind of a different mirror of reality yeah i thought it was very effective I liked the way it was presented and I liked the idea of it. I did feel that this part of the film, or at least this scene, went on for too long and it hit diminishing returns. That initially it was very creepy and unsettling, but then Beth was going through the house over and over again and seeing Owen killing more women and the shape of the house kept changing and she'd see more bits of this negative space entity and stuff like that. And then she moved through more of the house. And it wasn't a particularly long scene, but at the same time, I felt like I'd got the point and it just kept going on and on and on. And by the end of it, I found it quite numbing and I felt it had sort of undermined the creepiness that it had built up. Yeah, because she starts off by seeing this shadowy silhouetted figure up against a wall or window and it turns to look at her, but then she also sees it again in a hallway. And yeah, Mm. it does seem to go over similar territory in very quick succession. I think it needs to give you that quite a few times to give you the impression that he hasn't just killed one woman. Yeah. He's killed multiple women. This has happened to a lot of people and it delivers it quite... I mean, as you say, Scott, it's not a long scene. It delivers it at quite a fast pace. And it is quite disjointed as well. So you're kind of being quite sort of thrown around as, as Beth is too. But at the same time, and you're seeing that entity over and over again... When you see it once, when you see that shift in perspective and realise what you're seeing, it's creepy. But by the time you've seen it a few times, it again dilutes the effect of it. And I think there's a lesson there for gaming as well about less being more. If you've got something creepy and unsettling, using it sparingly is far more effective than presenting the same image or the same thing over and over again because by the third or the fourth time it's sort of oh yeah it's that again beth confronts owen she finds him sat on a sofa with well with her 
and there's a Christmas tree and they're watching TV. So she's sort of come in on this domestic romantic scene and she starts talking with what appears to be Owen. And Owen states that he is what she felt when her heart stopped in the accident, i.e. nothing. He is that nothingness beyond death. And that he has been with her ever since. He says he repeatedly whispered in Owen's ear, trying to get Owen to send Beth back to him. But he wouldn't. Instead, Owen tried to trick this entity and sent other women to him, trying to trick him at least for a while. I do like the basic idea here that it's almost like death or maybe a psychopomp or whatever it is that's on the other side there, that nothingness, has developed some kind of obsession with Beth. It is kind of like she has got a stalker, this almost sexually obsessed or romantically obsessed stalker, except that stalker is a psychopomp. Longing for the one that got away. But it also made me think that you could go for a completely bad taste version of this and almost do it as a supernatural romance story. I mean, it's a kind of personification, I took it, as a sort of personification of that kind of void of nothingness. Mm. It wouldn't have a personality or a, a will, but somehow it's kind of manifested one through her. It's interesting. I watched this at the same time as I was reading Nicole Cushing's novel, Mr. Suicide, which is a novel that is narrated by a sort of externalised manifestation of suicidal ideation, and is very much about these supernatural entities. There's another one called The Great Dark Mouth, who operate as these calls to self-abnegation to, well, Mr. Suicide driving people to suicide and atrocity, but the Great Dark Mouth as this entity that is trying to pull people into completely erasing their lives. It struck me as being almost like an echo of that. You could almost see this as being some kind of personification of that impulse to erase oneself. The Invisible Presence goes full-on poltergeist and suspends Beth up in the air, and she passes out. But the next morning, Claire comes by and finds the house is deserted. Beth awakens, but thinking it's still night from her perspective, is in the boat with the Owen thing, this nothing, with his face. She asks the thing where Owen is, and it simply tells her he's gone. Claire finds Owen's gun is missing from the house and sees Beth all alone in the boat out on the lake. Mel hears Claire calling for Beth, so he also comes round and joins. Beth has the gun in her hands as the figure tells her, there is nothing, there is only me. And she's just sat there sort of toying with the gun. And he's obviously enticing her to, well, do what Owen did in the boat on the lake. So Beth's figures reach around the trigger of the gun as the voice asks her to come back to me. With the gun pointed towards her face, Beth finally hears Claire calling her name from the shore. Beth snaps out of her trance and finds herself cradling the gun in the boat out on the lake in the daylight. Claire jumps into the water and swims towards the boat and topples Beth out and brings her to the shore. 
I feel like we should have given a spoiler warning there because I really didn't know what was going to happen at that <laughs> point, whether she was going to shoot herself or not. I did actually wonder whether this was one of these films where the studio had asked for rewrites at the last moment, but well, because of where we're going at the moment, it did actually occur to me that this might be one of those rare cases where we do see the original ending, because I think there's a little sting that comes with it. Claire gets Beth back to the dock and tells her that she's safe now. Mel follows Beth's gaze across the water while they're both on the dock, fairly low down, where there's just the faintest outline of this dark figure at the back of the boat. On the initial glance, you don't really see anything. It could literally just be a trick of the light off the water, but mm. then it slowly gets a bit more coalesced and you see, no, there is actually something there. Yeah. Mel asks, what is it? There's nothing there, he says, almost like he's trying to convince himself. And the very last shot of the film is looking out at this boat and Beth's voice just saying, I know, and then fade to black. That's very much the implication there that, yes, all right, she's been pulled out of that one moment by Claire, but that whatever that is, that entity, that manifestation, that impulse is never going to leave her. Yeah, I think so. I agree. I mean, I guess, well, who knows what's going to happen next, but uh, we can assume even if she moves away from uh, the lake house and goes somewhere else, that, that void is always going to be with her. Mm. Yeah. But I've got to say, Matt, very good choice. Really enjoyed it. Really good. It felt like a really good quality modern drama at the start and really well-made film. Yeah, I, I was very impressed with it. It was great. Yeah, I thought it was creepy as hell. There were some really great moments in it. As I say, I mean, there were bits where I thought it had lost its way and could have benefited from a bit of tightening. But on the whole, I thought, yeah, it was a very strong film. This sounds almost like this is getting three ticks across the board from each of us then, yeah? Good Lord. <laughs> wow, we agree, pretty much. <laughs> I won't pretend it's one of my favourite films, but I did enjoy it. There's hope for my film choices yet. <laughs> it's no cadaver, Matt, but... F oh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, thanks going out to Ryan Harvey. And thanks also to Jeremy Abernathy. And thank you to Stacey Hardwick. And thanks to Eric Lampert. And thank you very much to Sid Rizavi. If you are enjoying the podcast, please do let other people know. Whether that means leaving a review somewhere where people might stumble across it, or mentioning it to your friends on social media, or shouting it from the rooftops. Whatever it is, if you can get the word out there to other people, we would be extremely grateful. Or just making people's hi-fi systems come on in the middle of the night and have a recommendation from us also works. Well, playing our podcast. Yeah. 
Okay, well, that was The Night House from 2020, and you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Can you imagine how different that would have been if every time the hi-fi had stashed up it had been playing Japanese Sandman? Instant five stars right there.